This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, National Review correspondent Kevin Williamson recounts the politics and everyday lives of the white American working class from his travels through parts of Appalachia. He's interviewed by Washington Examiner columnist and CNN contributor Selena Zito. I am so excited to be interviewing Kevin Williamson. Kevin, uh, I'm so I'm just thrilled to talk to you about your book. Uh, how long can you talk a little bit about how you came up with the the, the name? Oh, well, the name comes from an essay I wrote a couple of years ago about poverty in Eastern Kentucky. So I spent some time in a place called Alsey County which gets a lot of journalists visiting it because it's typically it comes up as the poorest place in America on the uh, census figures. So every 10 years when the new census comes out and it turns out this is the poorest place in America, they get journalists like me and other, uh, you know, pain in the butt people in the media to come write about their place. So it was kind of funny. Some of the people I talked to down there, they were like, oh yeah, we know these guys from the New York times, these people in the Washington Post, they've all been down here and talk about it. So, um, but what I, what I came to believe is that um, these sort of really spread out, overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly poor uh, places in parts of rural America are in many ways um, socially and economically and, and to a lesser extent politically similar to similar poor urban uh, communities. Although there are some important differences between the two, particularly when it comes to things like crime. So it's a, um, it's a kind of way of life that we don't write about as much because it's so dispersed that it's not concentrated and visible, and it's not a way of life that is lived in the uh, places where major newspapers and media companies and things like that are based. So it tends to fly under the radar a bit. And, you know, what were your, how much time did you spend there? Did you get in and get out? Or did you spend time in the area? Maybe talk to the listeners a little bit about how you connected with the people that you're writing about. Yeah, it's um, well, you know, you and I do similar things in a way that I, you know, get in a car and I go to a place and I walk around and I talk to people and I stay there until I think I've heard everything I need to hear from them and then right. I go write about it. It's this 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 magical process called journalism, uh, where you go to a place and you look and see what's going on, and you ask people questions and you write down what they say. So um, that particular story came from a uh, a pretty long trip uh, that was from Dallas to uh, Southern Virginia and back. So it wasn't just about uh, Kentucky. So there are other places along the along the way that I wrote about. Uh, some of it is in uh, Tennessee. Uh, Someone's in West Virginia, although mostly it's about this one particular community in, in Eastern Kentucky. Tom, can you explain a little bit about that, that bridge between, because you're very, very good at, at crossing that bridge and connecting that bridge of not just writing a story, not just reporting a story, but also incorporating storytelling uh, into your report and maybe talk a little bit about as you as you talk to these people and you listen to these people and you got to know their communities how much storytelling for them is still very alive and part of their culture yeah it's funny when you um interview people who are not professionally in the business of being interviewed you know people in politics or other people in media and things like that at first, people are always a little bit hesitant. Um, it's a little like um, a trip to the principal's office. You know, have I done something wrong? Why is this person coming to my town and asking me questions about things that I don't necessarily want to talk about? But what I find is that, um, I mean, the dirty little secret of, of journalism is that uh, it's kind of easy in a way that um, people like to talk about their lives and they like to talk about what's going on and their histories and their perspective on things. And generally, if you will let them talk, and listen to them, 
and not try to force them into a particular line of conversation or a line of narrative. And a lot of journalists do that, unfortunately, where they structure their questions and their interviews in such a way that it really serves a preconceived notion of what the story is before they go in. Uh, one of the things that I, I, I tend to like to do is to um, do some of my research after the fact. You know, when I did the uh, the piece on Elsie County, Rich Lowry, the editor of National Review, just said, why don't he gave me this, this weird cryptic Rich Lowry text, you know, that you get from him with no vowels in it, uh, that basically <laughs> said, you know, poverty, Eastern Kentucky story, what do you think? And so, you know, I got in the car and I went, and there's a poverty Appalachia story, thoughts, you know, something like that. Um, so, you know, people, people like to, uh, to talk about what's going on in their lives. And it's, um, it's fun for me sometimes to show up to a place like that fresh without too many preconceived notions. So I don't really go in saying, you know, here's the story I'm gonna write and here's what I have in mind to do about this. I just more have a place and people in mind. So what is life like in this particular place? And I've done that in a number of different pieces. Um, I did a similar piece about um, opiate and heroin addiction in which I spend a lot of time talking to people in uh, recovery programs and people who run treatment facilities and people who sell drugs and all sorts of people. And I uh, let them talk about their lives. And that's another one of those stories that it's not a world that I, I went into knowing a lot about. Um, I probably know more about addiction and the things that go along with it than, than most people do, and certainly more than I, I want to. But um, you don't really know what it's like to run a halfway house in New Orleans unless you've done it. And um, so often I'll go into these interviews with just a, you know, a fairly vague notion and a couple of opening questions about what I want to talk about and then just kind of let people talk. What uh, have you found a sense of connection with the people that you listen to, the people that you write about, even if you didn't go in there with a sense of being like, how am I going to be connected to this, the, this person because they do this with their lives? Is there any part of you that, that becomes connected to your story? Uh, no, I try to avoid that. That's actually one of the ways where you and I are, are really very different uh, writers is that I'm not a uh, very sympathetic writer. In fact, I try to uh, avoid those kinds of connections. You know, I, I write a lot about pathologies and things that are not working well in society and not working well yeah. for people. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm an oncologist writing about cancer, uh, in a sense, you know, that's um, a plumber yeah. writing about why your, why your, uh, pipes aren't working. So, um, I think we suffer from an excess of sentimentality in journalism about social dysfunction, particularly in journalism about poverty. Um, there's, I, I think, too much of an effort to be made made to not to be genuinely sympathetic or stupid word empathetic, as as we all must say now, but to appear that way. And uh, journalists currently, particularly, you know, journalists writing for, for the big outlets are um, much more conscious, I think, of their own image and their presentation of themselves than they are the story. And so um, they end up writing these kind of, you know, extravagantly sentimental things about how much they feel for the suffering of, uh, of these people and, and yada, yada, yada. I don't think that makes particularly interesting journalism. And I don't think it makes particularly useful journalism. Uh, I think what's useful is to go in and find out what's actually happening in a particular yeah. situation and then to try to document it as well as you can. So I try to be entertaining in my writing. Um, oh, you definitely are it, that. But I don't make much of an effort to be sympathetic. I, 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 I don't, I don't know that you're sympathetic, but I do think you bring the people to life, uh, vividly, uh, warts and all. Uh, and I think that's important in journalism and in storytelling, because if we don't understand what's going on, if we don't understand this person, um, how do we start to think about any solutions if there are at all? Uh, with what we're reporting on. Um, so what are some of the things that you want people to get from this work? What, 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 when you were, did you set out to, when you, uh, let me backtrack for a second. When you went to do this book, you just, you just talked about like, 
you don't have an editor telling you, find this story. You go out and find the story. Is that how you approach this book? And maybe you could talk to uh, the listeners a little bit about that approach and what some of the things you were discovered that maybe took you off track to where you thought the book was going. Yeah. Well, um, you mentioned bringing people to life. And every now and then, you know, the, the fates just hand you a good character. And um, so sometimes that's easier than it seems. Um, but of course, you know, you end up interviewing 11 or 12 people for every person you actually write about or, or quote or something, because most people aren't that interesting and they don't express themselves in interesting ways. But I remember particularly in the Kentucky piece, you know, the, uh, I spent some time with the chief of police down there and, um, you know, he's the guy who's the chief of police in this weird, uh, isolated backwater in Kentucky. He's from New York City. He grew up in Staten Island. And uh, so he's got this sort of New York cop thing uh, going on. And he married a woman from there and they moved out there. And he likes, you know, kind of being outdoors. So he prefers Kentucky to New York. But that's the kind of character you could write a movie about. You know, it would be a, a right. fiction character you could make up. Um, but it happens that he's a real guy. And uh, I was lucky enough to, uh, to have some time to talk to him about his, his perspectives. So, yeah, the way I, I tend to work is... Um, you know, more topically, I'll have a pretty broad idea of a subject that I want to write about or a place that I want to write about. Um, so I've, I've written a couple of big pieces on uh, the energy industry and uh, partly in, in Western Pennsylvania, which you know very well, but then partially in uh, West Texas. And they're, they're different in the, in the different places because Pennsylvania and Texas, and I've lived in both states and grew up in Texas, are um, just culturally very different places. But most people, when they write about the energy industry, end up writing, you know, some sort of economic and trade treaties or, you know, something about economic development and that kind of stuff. And that's all a good part of the story. But there are a lot of people out there to uh, tell that story. You know, when I was out in um, Western Pennsylvania writing about this, there was just cool stuff. Um, like they had these giant, you know, 90 foot tall drilling rigs that have... Uh, robotic feet attached to them. So instead of having to tear them down and rebuild them when they move it to a new well, it just kind of walks across right. where it's going. And that's just nuts. You know, yeah. and, uh, you know, most people don't really know about this, this kind of stuff. Or, you know, the history of the, uh, the energy industry in, in Midland, Texas is really pretty interesting in the way it's changed. You know, in the 1960s, Midland, which had about 60,000 people, I guess, at that point, had a Rolls-Royce dealership in town. There was so much money coming out of the ground. And it really was this kind of, you know, wild cowboy culture of people making a million dollars overnight and spending it the next night, uh, that sort of thing. And that's really changed a lot, too. So it's been interesting to watch this, this industry that once had this reputation of being, you know, kind of a haven for wild men and cowboys and such become this really buttoned down and at heart very nerdy uh, business that's really run by engineers and uh, finance guys. And it's become, it's really fascinating, uh, high-tech, uh, sophisticated business, but it's also still guys, you know, drill holes in the ground and, um, and drink whiskey at seven o'clock in the morning and, and that sort of thing. So it's, it's an interesting uh, place to sit in and, and, and think about and talk about for a while. And you notice weird little things if you spend a lot of time in a particular place, like uh, at the height of the oil and gas boom when I was out in Midland, uh, the jobs in that industry are just so good and uh, so readily available, including to people who don't have a lot of skills or education, that it's hard to hire men particularly for any other sort of job in town. So in the day, daytime, literally every service job I saw, you know, every restaurant, every work, uh, every person, every store was a woman uh, because the men were pretty much all working in the, uh, in the oil and gas fields. And I think that, really affects how a place understands itself culturally. Uh, you know, I grew up in, in Lubbock, Texas, which is not too far from there, but it's a very, very different place because it's a college town, not, in, not an oil and gas town. So it's a, a whole different kind of culture, a whole different sort of um, society. So I, I find that you need to spend some time in a place um, before you start noticing the, those little things. Or like, you right. know, another odd thing is they have this, this weird upside down uh, hotel market where, you know, a hotel room is 60 bucks on the weekend, but it's $400 on a weeknight because they have no housing there. 
and all the people coming in from other places need places to stay. And so they end up taking up the hotels. So it's a very weird, strange, interesting place. And I really enjoyed writing about it. Yeah, absolutely. We have that going on too in Western Pennsylvania with the, um, with the energy, you know, the workers that come in uh, to work on the cracker plant uh, and then the hotel, these little mom and pop, motels went from you know you know living on a thread to all of a sudden being able to 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 all of a sudden being able to thrive and you know do better uh so let's talk a little bit about poverty because it's very central uh, to your book i don't want to give the book away the book is amazing uh but maybe you could talk through a little bit about the, the thread of poverty throughout the book and and what you learned about about that in in particular places like Appalachia? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it manifests itself different ways in different communities. So um, most of the book is about um, sort of downscale uh, rural to, uh, you know, exurban America. Although there are a couple of big pieces on big cities, one on Philadelphia and one on Chicago and both of them with their, uh, their, their murder problems. Yeah. And one of the first things you, you learn about this is that poverty really manifests itself differently in big cities than it does in the uh, countryside. So, you know, um, Appalachia, particularly the, the Kentucky parts of, of Appalachia has just enormous poverty. You know, Owsley County when I was there is something like, I don't know, 70% welfare dependency, uh, something yeah. like that. It's a, it's a big number, but their crime rate is a bit lower than the national average and their violent crime rates about half the uh, national average. Now, part of that is because in small communities, it's hard to get away with anything. Uh, you know, the uh, police chief right. there was telling me he would hear someone describe a crime and when and where it happened and have a pretty good idea you know, he needed to go uh, arrest about it. You know, it's an idea where the usual, a place where the usual suspects is a, is a real thing. Although, um, there's, a, there's at least one criminal genius down there. There was a big spate of uh, car robberies uh, where something like 40 cars were uh, robbed and they were robbing them on Sunday mornings while people were in church, which is the one time you can really get away with a, uh, a crime out there. And uh, in this very small, very poor place, somebody had $20,000 in cash in his car that was taken. So I kind of want to know where that came from. I think that might be an interesting uh, thing to look into. So, um, you know, again, it gets kind of uh, kind of interesting. So poverty really manifests itself in, in different ways in different communities. And it's not in the kind of straightforward way that we tend to think of these, you know, bedtime stories we tell ourselves that all of the despair and social dysfunction that we see is really a product of poverty because there are some places that are quite poor that are quite functional. And there are a lot of people who... Um, end up having these pathologies, whether it's addiction or other things that we associate with poverty, who don't have anything to do with poverty. Um, you know, when I was writing the piece about um, heroin addiction, I and you'd be these four young men in Alabama who were all in early stages of, uh, of a recovery program. And they didn't all have, you know, great lives, but um, they weren't, you know, really remarkably poor. Some of them actually came from fairly affluent uh, families. They had educated parents, uh, most of them, you know, parents who'd gone to college, that sort of thing. And um, their problem in life wasn't that they were poor. It was that they didn't know how to live and what to do with their lives. And they didn't have any particular ambitions beyond the next five minutes. And they'd never learned how to do that. I think those sorts of um, social conditions tend to be worse among very poor people and in very poor communities. And I, I suppose that's also something I should mention is that I think there's an enormous difference between poor individuals and poor communities. Uh, you know, being a poor person in a place that isn't necessarily poor, I think is a lot easier than being a poor person in a poor community. You know, I grew up in a pretty poor uh, household myself, but we grew up, you know, in a, in a college town where most of my friends from school, their parents were college professors or other sorts of professionals or things like that. So there was some kind of free-floating social capital that someone like me could, could benefit from. But if you're growing up in, you know, Eastern Kentucky and everyone you know is in the same condition you are, and if you're, say, a reasonably gifted student who's thinking about going to college, you've never met anyone who went to college to, you know, sort of give you kind of basic knowledge or advice about what this process looks like. 
Um, you know, there are people who are just completely befuddled, as I was, by things like, you know, financial aid paperwork or the application process, yeah. that sort of thing. And um, so the places I've been writing about mostly are, are poor communities and the poor people in those poor communities, um, rather than poor people in, in relatively affluent places, which I think socially and politically ends up being just a, a very different story. When uh, you discuss how there's some similarities between urban poor and rural poor, uh, one of the things uh, that I think is culturally similar is the lack of trust in big government um, or institutions or the man, whatever way you want to put it, yet there is this great dependency on it as well. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about those, the, those cultures having things that they're very similar uh, or the similarities that they share? Yeah, I think there is a great deal of distrust of institutions and um, a sense that the um, dysfunction in these communities is in some cases a kind of badge of authenticity. Um, you know, and everyone always sees it on the other side. Like there are a lot of, you know, white conservatives back in the 90s who were talking about, you know, rap music and glorification of various kinds of, you know, criminal enterprises and, and social dysfunction. But I've never heard a country song about like going to study engineering at MIT. You know, they tend to be, um, you know, similar kinds of things of celebrating various sorts of things that we think of as being um, unwise choices that people, people make with their lives. And uh, the institutional distrust, I think, is um, learned very early in life but um, gets worse later in life. So I was writing um, about a situation where there was an economic development project in the South Bronx where I was living at the time. And uh, it ended up not happening because the New York City unions and politicos made various unrealistic demands about the project. And so the investors just walked away from it in a neighborhood where there's not a lot of employment. And I was talking to a guy up there who was about my age at the time. I was just under, under 40 when I was writing that one. And so he was, you know, probably 38 or 39 and he just never had a job. And as far as I could tell, he'd never known a man who had had a job. Uh, he knew women who had jobs. His mother had a job and, um, and some of the other ladies in his life uh, worked, but he didn't really know, you know, a man with a job. And, um, you know, even at the age of 40 had very unrealistic expectations about, um, you know, what he might end up doing for a living if he was ever going to become, you know, sort of self-sufficient in some way. Um, I remember him saying that he kind of had an idea he might want to open a club or a bar, but he's a convicted criminal, so he'll never get a liquor license. Um, but that doesn't seem to have occurred to him. But, you know, similar things on, on, on the other side of that, too. I spent some time in a homeless camp in uh, Austin, Texas, and I interviewed a young woman there who, um, you know, was living out of a car and cooking over a fire uh, in front of a, you know, fire pit she built in front of her car out of cinder blocks and stuff. And, uh, you know, her plan was to enroll in an online entrepreneurship program and, uh, you know, become sort of some sort of some sort of business person, um, which maybe is not a terrible long term goal. But the short term goal is maybe get a job and a place to live so you're not living out of the back of the car. She had a kid, you know, she had a daughter a teenage daughter um, who didn't live with her full time, but she, she spent some time with her. And, um, you know, she was really just convinced that what she needed was an online degree in entrepreneurship, and that was going to, to make her life different. And you get a lot of people in those situations who I think just don't know how to go about improving their lives. And there's also status anxiety that um, the kinds of jobs that are available to a lot of people in, in these very bad situations are jobs that are held in very low regard socially. I think we've got a very un, unproductive national attitude about work. I think that um, we really sneer at people who have jobs that don't require college degrees. Um, we sneer at people who work in jobs that we all need and that are necessary. You know, people who work the counters at gas stations. You know, I worked the overnight shift at a 7-Eleven once upon a time myself for, uh, for some time. And um, but we, we tend to think of people in those jobs as being, uh, you know, losers and we treat them sort of badly socially, whereas, you know, in a, in a more functioning society with a better attitude toward work, this would be seen as at least a first step towards some kind of self-sufficiency. And in many cases, uh, enough to provide self-sufficiency. There are people who work as 
you know, gas station clerks and waitresses and things like that who make enough of a living to, uh, to, to get by on. And we talk a lot, you know, in the last four years, especially about the situation of the white working class, as we, as we have all been taught to call them. But the working class, I don't think actually is in terribly bad shape. The working class is working. And yes. uh, you know, it's been a great time to be working in America. The problem is, is the unworking class. Um, people who either can't or for some reason won't connect with gainful employment and get themselves on a uh, path to self-sufficiency, at least, if not something better than self-sufficiency. And that's a really hard one to, um, it's a hard enough to crack socially to convince people that they should take jobs that don't pay very much and that are held in sort of low social regard because it's the first step toward making their lives better, because it seems like the first step toward making your life worse. With that notion, do you believe that part of why uh, they're stuck, I always categorize this as people that are stuck, is that there haven't been people to give them good examples of of doing this, or there hasn't been someone that, not not necessarily a mentor, but someone uh, that at school or a brother or a sister or a classmate that has gone on and does those things. Is it a, do you find yourself in a community of people that are stuck because that, that door hasn't been open to many people in that community? Yeah, I think um, there's a lack of imagination, uh, which is itself based on a lack of knowledge. So a lot of people in difficult situations just can't think of how to get from where they are to a, a better situation. And there are opportunities and possibilities that are open to them that they don't know about, that they've never really thought about. Um, you know, one of my favorite stories I've, I, I've written was about, partly about this guy named Joel uh, Buckowitz, who has a company called Cut Brooklyn. And uh, he was one of these guys who went and got an MFA in creative writing somewhere and thought he was gonna be a novelist and uh, discovered as a lot of writers or would-be writers discover that writing is no fun. You know, you lock yourself up in a room and uh, can be kind of boring and, and lonely work. So he decided he wasn't going to do that. But he always been kind of interested in making knives. And he tried to make a knife and it wasn't very good. But, you know, he went on YouTube and got some videos and ordered some books. And it turns out he's a really, really good knife maker. And so he's got this company in Brooklyn that sells these high-end kitchen knives for like $2,500 a knife. Uh, they're just extraordinarily you know, expensive uh, things. And when I was writing about him, he couldn't keep stuff in stock. You know, his store was open two days a week for half a day, for four hours, and he would sell out everything he could make. And if he had anything left, he would, you know, send out a tweet uh, with a picture of it and a price, and it would sell in, in, in minutes. I haven't checked in on him in a while, but I, I, I hope his business is still doing well. Now, there's no one who's telling you when you're 15 or 16 years old that, um, you can have a nice living and a rewarding kind of life um, making things like that in an artisanal sort of way and selling them. Um, now he was someone with an education and, um, and who came from the sort of background that he had some social capital where he could afford to experiment a little bit and, um, and who uh, understood the value of that kind of experimentation. But there are a lot of people I think who just never it would never occur to them to even try something like that. It would never occur to them to sort of, you know, try to start a business uh, along those lines. Whereas this is really, you know, one of the great golden ages of entrepreneurship. It's probably never been easier to start a business. It's probably never been easier to fill a very, very narrow economic niche. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of a lot of modern communication technology. I mean, I think social media is a sewer and uh, has made public discourse worse. But one thing it has done is it's really allowed people with specialized kind of interests to connect with other people with specialized interests. And so if you're somebody who wants a, a $2,000 kitchen knife, then there's a guy who's the guy who does that. And um, that's true of a lot of different areas of business, a lot of different areas of interest. And uh, one of the things that we could change, I think, educationally would be to give people more resources and more of an idea about doing those sorts of things because I think there is something that is, um, even if it doesn't pay a ton, about having your own business, your own operation, uh, doing the thing that you are interested in, and um, that provides benefits beyond uh, just the paycheck. And there's a lot more to modern working life than a paycheck. You know, a lot of people's sense of self and status 
in place in the world is very tied up in their employment. Yeah. And um, that's one of the reasons I think why people shy away from these very low status jobs, because they don't want to sort of confirm that that's the kind of person they are. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So uh, the solution, the problem with the unworking class, I like how you put that, the unworking class. The, where does the problem begin? Is it cultural? Is it geography? Is it failure in education? Is it all three? What 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 is what, what did your what does your book roll out to uh, to approach the the nugget of, of where this problem started? Yeah, well, um, you know, it's more of a book of stories than it is a book of arguments. So there's not a lot of that kind of um, you know hypothetical analysis in it, and it's it's different for different people. So there are people whose main problem is that they live in a place that is economically destitute and doesn't have a lot of capital or opportunities. And um, so the solution for that is, is fairly simple, I think, which is if you want a job and there are no jobs where you are, go where there are some jobs. Um, you know, a lot of people on the right, particularly a lot of my fellow conservatives have complained just very bitterly about this part of my, my argument and my analysis. But um our choice really for places that are, you know, truly economically moribund is either get people to places where they can work and be independent or maintain them in some sort of public dependency indefinitely. Uh, you can't magic some other way uh, around to do that. And the idea that you can, through some public policy or by putting a university there or something, just magically transform every, you know, economically stagnant community in the country into something else is just, um, it's not supported by the evidence. Uh, now there's a lot of good things that come from just having a tight labor market and uh, which tend to make uh, wages better and employment opportunities better. And there are things we can do along those fronts. But, you know, the idea that we're going to change the economic outlook of Kentucky or Ohio or Michigan with aluminum tariffs or by, you know, making angry noises at the Chinese or something like that. It's just silly, wishful thinking. Um, a lot of the stuff is hereditary. You know, people tend to inherit their parents' problems and their parents' ways of looking at the world and uh, their parents' prejudices and biases and uh, habits. And um, it's difficult to interrupt that even when they should be interrupted. Again, there's not a real good policy for that, although better schools, I think, would certainly do some uh, do some good on that front. I certainly think that was the, the case for me, where I just, dumb luck, happened to go to a place that had just really extraordinarily good public schools. And uh, I had some teachers who were really able to point me in the, in the right direction um, on some things, you know, tell me what to read, uh, give me some ideas about what a vocation eventually could look like for someone who liked to write, that sort of thing. Um, but if you don't have that, you don't have it in your family, you don't have it in your community, then it's not going to be created by some government policy. Right. You know, there's a Republican thing to try to want to, well, there's not enough economic opportunity, so let's create a national economic opportunity agency that will explore economic opportunity opportunities for these places <laughs> that opportunities. And that's just not how stuff works. You know, my, my political views on this stuff is, are, are pretty simple. That what people need from their governments are, you know, basically stability, rule of law, predictable uh, arrangements, and the usual government services delivered in a way that's reasonably effective and not unreasonably expensive. Um, now, in a lot of places, we don't have that. You know, I spent a, a good amount of time driving around every bankrupt city in California and every city that was about to go bankrupt. And I was actually in San Bernardino for the uh, city council meeting there where they officially went into bankruptcy and um, you know, decided they were going to reorganize their finances. And 
just listening to the people who were entrusted with the power of governing the city was really despair inducing. I mean, they were, (laughs) they were just, I mean, Republicans, Democrats, independents, I don't even remember what they were for the most part, but they were just the dumbest, most self-righteous, most intellectually lazy, insipid group of human beings that I can remember ever having had the displeasure of having to write about. And uh, in this city where the, um, where the decay is so just obviously visible, where you've got you know this giant shopping mall in the middle of the city that has like 400 storefronts or something like that, of which two were occupied, you know, and one was uh, I think a tax office and one was a nail salon or something like that, where you know the uh, front door of the city hall is literally falling off its hinges, and city hall had a sign on front that said "out of order," <laughs> which I thought again it was another one of those details you couldn't make up if you were writing fiction, but it happened to be happened to be true. And this was once a really quite prosperous, thriving, you know, middle class, upper middle class uh, working community. And it's a good example of how not to make the transition. You know, San Bernardino is unlike Eastern Kentucky in that Eastern Kentucky didn't have some economic crisis. There wasn't some business that went away. It's just kind of always been poor. And as the rest of the world's gotten wealthier, their poverty seems more extreme by comparison. San Bernardino, on the other hand, was a place that had had a big chunk of the aerospace business and a lot of those jobs. And uh, that just didn't last there for, for various reasons. And um, they weren't able to find a way to get to another place to, uh, to make something else happen. And again, I think there's only so much city governments can do on that front, but what they can do is, you know, do their job reasonably well, which they weren't doing in San Bernardino where there's, you know, open prostitution on the streets and, and that sort of thing and a general sense of, you know, decay and disorder and lawlessness. And um, the idea that there's going to be some sort of blue ribbon commission composed of these idiots that's going to, you know, magically turn these places around is I think just preposterous. Yeah, that, I remember uh, driving through a town called Ford Heights. It's in Cook County, um, Southern, uh, uh, south, southern suburb of Chicago, and uh, majority black population. And I came around the bend, and I saw everything was just shut uh, from every every business, even the projects. And I just can remember just this: How did this go from pretty prosperous town? They had a Ford plant there, uh, a nice uh, middle class black town, to just everything being gone and and there, there's really something sort of like a george romero movie when you when you pull up and you see these places uh that have fallen into such despair you know you see that in places like los angeles you know right. um, kevin james not the actor but the uh guy who was a republican candidate for mayor out there some years ago took yeah. me a little drive around uh, parts of the city where you had just blocks and blocks and blocks of shuttered storefronts, things like that. And how is this possible in Los Angeles? But then it's also New York City's got, you know, vast areas that are really quite underdeveloped and uh, where there's very little commercial activity. And um, this is not a market failure, I think. This is a, this is a policy failure. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you go about picking the stories for the book and did you leave some behind and you were felt really bad about not having them in there? Yeah, there's always uh, ones that you, you, know, you wish you'd uh, included afterward. And um, so, yeah, I, the book could have been twice as long. It would have suited me just fine to be twice as long. I'm not sure it would have suited everyone else. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I didn't want it to be too closely tied to what's currently going on in, in politics. You know, I um, I don't really write very much about campaigns. Uh, part of my, um, you know, my my every four years uh, act of contrition and reconciliation is I do spend some time writing about presidential elections when they're going on, but it's not really what interests me and not really where I think I provide a very useful service. So I didn't want to write something that was, you know, what does the Trump phenomenon mean? What did the, all this talk we've had for the last four years about the work, white working class? Is it true? Is it not true? Blah, 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 blah. There's some of that stuff in the book, inevitably, um, because right. I, I do write about politics. But I didn't want to write something that was, uh, you know, kind of campaign book or a, a retrospective um, account of what's been going on uh, over the last four years. 
So I tried to pick things that I thought were, um, I wanted everything in the book to be something that would be of interest 20 years from now still. So I don't think that, you know, a lot of it isn't, you know, today's headlines, it's kind of bigger stories about bigger issues that are going to be around for a while. You know, so I, um, I went to the um, AVN Awards in Las Vegas, which is the annual, the Oscars of pornography, uh, as they call it. And um, I wrote a big thing about that business and what's actually kind of going on in pornography as a business and as a, as a social phenomenon. And uh, I think that'll still be an interesting story 10 years from now. I don't expect that to change very much. There's a long uh, section about casino gambling in there, which I think is just an absolute bane and uh, uh, canker on our uh, society. And another great big policy failure. Um, you know, I'm, a, I'm essentially a libertarian. I take a libertarian view of gambling. If you want to gamble, gamble, fine. But what's going on with gambling is not a free market thing at all. It's essentially, you know, state capitalism where you've got the government acting as a, as a partner in these um, operations that create no value, but just fleece poor and uh, often not very bright people and separate them from their money. And, uh, you know, I say this as someone who used to live in Las Vegas, um, casinos are just the most depressing places in America. Yes, particularly casinos outside you. of Las Vegas. <laughs> Uh, you know, I went to the one in Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania, I guess. I was oh, in yeah. a casino yeah. there. And I think yeah, they built kind of Dallas for my house. But I mostly, that piece I mostly was writing about, um, the casino piece, I was mostly in Atlantic City. Because this is a good example of this kind of wishful thinking of policymakers where they say, well, it worked really well for Las Vegas. So let's do the same thing in Atlantic City. And we'll create all these jobs and tax revenue and things like that. And most of the economic analyses of Atlantic City suggest that the region has actually suffered a net economic loss from gambling yeah. once you account for the extra law enforcement and social services and the other costs imposed by it. And, uh, but again, you know, it's not, a, uh, it's not an essay so much about the sociology of, of gambling or the political economy of gambling, but, you know, what actually goes on here? Um, what, is it, what does this casino look like at two o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon? Who's there? What are they doing? And um, that ended up being uh, being pretty fun. And it was right around the time where that um, new casino, the great big one they were opening, I think it was supposed to be called Rebel, although it ended up never opening and then being sold three or four times and whatever. But just as that was kind of falling apart uh, was when I was there. And so it was a particularly interesting time. I had one good um, decision on that one. So... Um, there's a dedicated Greyhound bus service between the New York City Port Authority bus terminal and the gambling area of Atlantic City. And they call it the Greyhound Lucky Streak. And uh, rather than ride the Lucky Streak down there, I rode it from Atlantic City back to New York on a Sunday morning. And uh, just sort of wrote about who was on the bus and who was waiting for the bus and what was going on. And no one felt lucky. You know, no yeah. one on that belt, bus felt like they were on a lucky That's amazing. Street. Yeah, there were, um, there was a guy who didn't have any pants, like, and wasn't seemed to be real clear on where his pants had gone. Um, there were, you know, women of grandmotherly age basically trying to turn tricks in the parking lot to uh, raise bus fare to get home, that sort of thing. Um, I mean, the, the Port Authority bus terminal is pretty despair-inducing on a good day, but um, it looked like uh, utopia compared to uh, where it was coming from. Oh, and you made an excellent point about governments be become uh, state governments becoming partners in, in getting casinos uh, built. It's just it blows my mind that 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 that, that has happened in our culture. Yeah, lotteries, too. You know, lotteries yeah. is an example of, um, uh, you know, a tax on innumeracy, essentially. And, um, you know, in, in Texas, where I live, um, although it's true in most states, there's always this dishonest rhetoric about, well, all the money from this gets dedicated to schools or all the money gets dedicated to schools and veterans affairs and things that are very sympathetic and that we all have good feelings about. But it's just nonsense, of course. I mean, there's a general account and there's one big budget that everything goes into and you can pretend like it's earmarked right. something or other, but money is fungible and it's just uh, nonsensical. And it's particularly galling to see the way these casinos get built, because mostly they're little places that look like a 7-Eleven, you know, that have got 10 or 12 uh, video poker machines in them. 
And, uh, you know, it's not the Borgata. It's not, uh, you know, it's not the Las Vegas Strip. It's these little places that look like convenience stores and just essentially get used as adult daycare facilities for elderly people who gamble away their social security checks. Um, and this happens in typically in very poor areas, not in, in very wealthy areas. And uh, it's, um, it's a grotesque abuse. Yeah, you can take the Lincoln Highway uh, from Pennsylvania into um, that little strip of the panhandle of West Virginia. And mm. as soon as you get across the state line, there's these tiny little, they call them cafes. Yes. Uh, but all, and, and they're inside beauty salons and barbershops and convenience stores. They have these tiny little um, casinos, cafes. Uh, and you're right, it's, it's almost always elderly people. Uh, that are sitting there and just just throwing their money away. And I never sort of understood the gambling culture at all. I work really hard. I've been poor. I, I can't imagine after working hard to like chance my money away. Yeah, you know, and again, it's it's another one of those stories where they're just telling little details that really um, stand out for me. Like in the uh, at the ATMs at the casinos in Atlantic City, a lot of them, you can take out money without putting in a code. So um, they want to just make it as easy as possible for you to uh, do that. So you just put in your card and you take out money. And you can also, I guess, take out more money than you have in the bank, um, where it, it treats it like a tr credit card transaction against the uh, casino and it gets put onto your bill. Uh, so if you've you know, had enough to drink that you uh, can no longer remember your ATM code, you can still get money out. And... Um, that doesn't say anything good about those operations. Let's talk a little bit about you before we wrap this up. All right. Um, you, you are an you're an incredible writer. I have, there's not a piece of yours that I haven't written at least read at least three times. Your attention to detail and bringing situations to life, and also ripping the scab off of things when we don't want to really see what's behind that scab, um, is is. Um, amazing American writing. Uh, how important do you think it is? And, and maybe it's not important at all, but do you think it's, how important do you think it is that you don't live in DC and or New York? Yeah, well, I lived in New York for right. uh, seven years, I guess. And I lived in DC for 11 months, maybe. Um, didn't like DC, I like New York, okay. Um, you know, it's funny because I think that the, the split in America is more class and culture than it is um, geographic. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the rich white parts of Dallas and Houston look and feel a lot like the rich white parts of Southern California or Fairfield County, Connecticut. Um, similar people with similar jobs and similar tastes. Uh, the poor rural parts of West Texas, where I'm from, um, look a lot like the poor rural parts of Eastern Kentucky, except they've got trees in Kentucky and we don't have those in, in West Texas okay. and, and water and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I like living where I live here in Texas because it's, um, it's, I travel a lot for work, at least I used to before this, uh, plague, but, um, it's a lot easier to, uh, get places, you know, from here. So if you can get to DFW, you can get pretty much to any you know major metro in the country in a couple of hours, and that's not really true of New York. You know, going from the east coast to the west coast or the other way around is um, right. a bit more of a production. Uh, I think what's maybe more important than where I live is the fact that I like to drive, and and that they like me that way. Yeah, I know. I know you put a lot of miles on that car. I rent cars then. Um, I don't usually take my own car, and that I don't mind crappy hotels. Uh, so it's uh, that's that's all right too, and. Um, same here. I mean, it's not my first choice. I'd rather have a nice hotel than a terrible one. But, uh, you know, you do what you do when you uh, work in journalism. Uh, you know, when the uh, Democratic Convention was in uh, Charlotte, I guess, a few years ago, I went down there to cover that for National Review. And, you know, the conventions themselves actually handle the journalist assignments, like to hotels and stuff there. And so when you cover the Democratic Convention, you work for National Review, you get just the worst hotel imaginable with, you know, there's crack vials and hookers and stuff. And yeah. it was, um, it was, uh, I actually ended up writing a pretty good story just about that and not writing about the, uh, the convention. I remember this. <laughs> and someone said of that hotel, you know, man, I wouldn't bring a hooker here. To which, Robert, 
To which Roger Stone replied, I would. <laughs> Not unexpected. Not unexpected, yeah. You, um, you love social media. By the way, thank you for your advice on that. I did too. It's been a one, it's been, it's made me a better reporter and a better person. Yeah. Can you explain why you left? Well, it's just kind of a time suck, you know. Um, I never really used it at all until um, in my middle 30s, I went to work for um, an advocacy organization and they required everyone to have a Facebook page. So that was the first time I ever um, you know, used any social media. And then I started using Twitter later when that became a thing. And um, I thought that it would be a good you know, kind of marketing tool, a way to connect people with your stories. And um, for me, it just never was. I mean, maybe some people get more value out of it than I do. Uh, you know, National Review's got a, a ton of traffic. And if I put up a post on the corner, you know, I can count on a couple of hundred thousand people seeing that, um, which is typically more than my, my reach would have been on Twitter. Uh, it's a good way to procrastinate too. And I don't need any more good ways to procrastinate because I've already got <laughs> enough. You know, you find yourself, you know, at two o'clock in the morning explaining Hayek to some Lehigh University student and uh, <laughs> mad about something. And it's just maybe you're not, not there's anything wrong with Lehigh University students. I'm sure they're very nice people. Um, maybe it's not always the best waste, best, uh, not the best waste of your time, not the best use of your time. And, um, also that just never really brought out, I think, uh, the best in, in me either. It's not my form. You know, I tend to write opening sentences that are 210 words long. And so the, uh, short, uh, version of Twitter is not, not so helpful. Some people are really very good at it. Um, and some people I think create some real value there, but, uh, just never really me. Uh, frankly, I've, um, you know, I bought myself one of those, uh, word processors that doesn't have uh, an internet connection yeah. or email or anything like that so that I can actually go and sit someplace and write and not have 10,000 ways to, uh, distract myself. And it's really very useful. I hate to, uh, admit that I get so much benefit from a crutch like that, but, um, just taking the, um, the opportunity to waste time away from yourself is really very useful, I find. And the older I get, the more it seems valuable to waste as little time as possible. Kevin Williamson, the great American writer of my lifetime. It has been really great talking to you about your book. I wish you great success with this. I think, I think people are gonna really enjoy it. Well, thanks so much, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org.